I'll add my welcome to that of Michael's. Really glad that you're here. And uh, if you're live streaming with us, really glad you're online right now. Uh, you may not know this here at the church, but there's um, hundreds of households that do the live streaming every week, and I get notes from people around the country who are watching. So hey, if you're watching, send us a note. We'd love to know that you're online with us right now. In either case, whether you're live in the auditorium or, or live streaming, I invite you to pull out your Bible, if you would, and uh, turn to Romans chapter 6. But while you're doing that, maybe you didn't bring a Bible with you, you see them in the racks around you, or maybe it's on your phone, um, open up your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back of the auditorium for you. Be sure and take one with you when you leave today. Really want you to have a copy of God's Word. So in Romans chapter 6, we're going to pick up where we left off, but also I'm going to ask you maybe to put a bookmark or your finger or a pen or something in Acts chapter 8 as well. I'm going to take you into a story this morning that's in the book of Acts that relates to Romans 6. So before we do any of that, how about if we pray together and ask God to give us insight into His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that You uh, would be especially near to us right now as we try to examine Your Word in a way that um, fits specifically with our individual lives. I know that you're always speaking, and you speak to us corporately, and we're asking, Father, right now that you would speak to us individually, people who are watching online and who are in the auditorium who have come with a heart of surrender, wanting to know more about you and understand who we are in relation to you. Father, I pray for this. I pray that you would help us to focus, that we would set aside the distractions, the things that might have consumed us this week, and just for this brief period of time that we would really be able to concentrate on our relationship to you and your calling upon us and what you expect of us and, and how that relates to our walk. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the gift of song that we've just experienced together. You didn't have to give us music and you did that. Thank you for the blessing of that, that we can listen to each other and, and we can sing together about how great you are. You are. And you're worthy of all the praise that we can give you. Father, that we would know you better as a desire. So we pray that your word that you say is alive and active and sharp, that you would use it now to speak to us. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So let me do a quick review with you so you can be caught up to where we were at last week. We did Acts, uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Um, didn't get past verse 2. I told you we'd pick it up in verse 3 this week, but here's where we were at last week. You see this monumental question that Paul asked. You, you see it on the screen. It's in your Bible in verse 2. In, in part B, he said this, how shall we, and he's talking about those of us who are of such quality. He's using the quality argument. Those of us who belong to Jesus Christ, whom God sent his son to die for, how shall we who died to sin, still live in it? Really important question. A very significant, if you're considering yourself this morning a follower of Jesus Christ, if, if you died to sin, if you died to something, how is it possible to continue to live in it? Because we understand that death does something. It separates, right? If you've lost a family member, if you've lost a friend in your life, you know you're separated from that person. If the death is legitimate, it's permanent until eternity. If you're a believer in Jesus, that person's a believer, you're reunited again, but death separates. If death's real, it's permanent. So in this case, the death he's talking about, he's using really deliberate language here, the, the death to sin, it, he's talking about the end of your old life, the things that we used to be involved with before Jesus. And he's talking about the beginning of a new life in Christ. Uh, pay 
Special attention to this. You won't find any place in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, does it say that sin died to the believer. Rather, it says the believer dies to sin. Why is that significant? Well, because like everybody else on planet Earth, we know that we're still tempted. Sin is still present, so we still struggle, right, church? Amen? We still struggle with it. We're still drawn towards it. It's still there. The difference is I choose not to act on it because of the Holy Spirit who lives within me, even though I might be drawn to it. So if you're new to church this morning and you think, man, this place is full of a bunch of super saints, I've got news for you. Um, We're all individuals who maybe some of us are just a little further down the trail. Maybe we know the Bible a little bit better, but we are still drawn towards that temptation thing. It's that Jesus died for sin, and he forgave us, and yet we're still tempted by it. But God says, I've given you a spirit within you to help you resist that temptation. I know we're talking about one-on-one level stuff here. It's very basic stuff. That's why we last week looked at the song Amazing Grace, and I talked about why John Newton wrote that and the history behind that particular song. And then I invited James to come up here on the platform with us and share his story, how he put his past in his past. This is all 101 level stuff. This is to help us understand why Paul is making this argument, why he's saying, how can we continue to live in something that we died to? When you became a follower of Jesus, that was a decisive step. A completely new beginning. It means the end of sin's reign. Why? Because the person who surrendered to Jesus, if you consider yourself that this morning, if you consider yourself a believer, that means you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of the living God. So therefore, you have the Holy Spirit within you bringing you new life. So let's just help everybody who might be wondering if we still struggle, church. Say amen if you agree with this. Do we still struggle? We do. It's just a reality. It's just that God said, Yeah, temptation's going to come your way. But I'm going to give you a way by which you can escape temptation. Let me remind you of the verse we ended with last week. You see it on the screen, 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you, and he's talking to believers here, who will not allow you, believers, to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. God says, I'll give you a way out. It's so if we say, no, I don't have a way out, we're, we're saying that's on us then because God says, no, it's there. My word says, I'll give you a way of escape. You will be able to endure it. It's just that we, we like to say yes. Temptation is tempting, right? It draws us in. So that sets us up well for where we're going with verse 3. Let's go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. And then he presents this question. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now here's big picture stuff because he's zooming way out. This is like 30,000 foot view. Asking this huge question. Don't you know? You've been baptized into Jesus. That meant there's something that happened. Now watch, Paul's assuming here there's a past tense action that has taken place. Something has happened that has changed in your life. He's referring to it not in the future, but in the past tense. Maybe you're thinking right now, wait, 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 Mark, is this saying, if I haven't been baptized yet, I'm not saved? Is that what that verse is saying? I want to be really clear on this, and we'll circle back to it in just a minute. You won't find any place in the Bible that it communicates that physical baptism saves you. Physical baptism, being immersed in the water, does not save you. 
If that was the case, we'd have to dismantle everything we looked at in the last 30 weeks in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 5. Because Paul says you can't earn it. It's a gift. It's the grace of God. So you can't earn it. Baptism doesn't save you. Uh, Friday night, I think it was, yep, uh, Friday night I got home really late. I'd been traveling, and uh, it's about 1230 at night, and my daughter Ashley asked me a question. She said, Dad, can I ask you a question? And I didn't realize it was going to be a theological question, so I immediately said, yeah, sure. And, and then I looked and saw it's 1237, and, and she said this. Um, she said, how come when I read the book of Acts, every time I see a person make a decision to follow Jesus that they're baptized immediately? but we don't do that today in the churches in America? How come we don't baptize people immediately? That's a good question. And I said to her, well, it's 1237 at night. Um, how about if you come to New Hope this weekend and you'll get the answer, right? Uh, and I gave her a better answer than that, right? But it was just really late and I didn't want to go into all the detail. But it was amazing to me that she asked that very question that has actually been what I've been preparing for this whole week because Paul's been asking this question. Don't you know those of us who have been baptized you see, he's stating it as a historical fact. He's assuming the action has already happened. Here's why this is so significant. There's an implication here. There's something going on here that Christians are expected to know. Why do I say it that way? Because Paul's never been to Rome. He's writing to people who are in the belly of the beast. They've never had the benefit of an apostle coming and teaching them. When you read Romans, Paul doesn't say, hey, it was nice to hang out with you guys. No, he says, I hope to come to you. And as far as we know, no other apostles ever made it there. How did that church spring up? Well, it looks like from Acts chapter 2 that it sprang to life organically as a result of the Pentecost, people hearing about Jesus moving back to Rome, and the church came to life there. So he's writing to a bunch of individuals who have never been discipled, but he's expecting them to know this. There's still an expectation. They would know this really 101 level stuff, this basic truth. So he asks the question in verse three. You just see these four words on the screen, and I'm gonna ask you this morning. Don't you know? It's a rhetorical question. You know what that is, right? Moms used to ask that all the time. I suppose they still do. My wife did. My, my mom asked me rhetorical questions. She'd say, Mark, I asked you to clean your room three times. How many times do I have to ask you? Well, being a smart aleck, I'd say four, right? And yeah, that didn't earn me much favor with my mom because um, that's what teenagers do, right? Rhetorical questions are kind of common to us. I asked a rhetorical question yesterday. I'm driving in my car coming up to a four-way stop sign and another car is approaching the four-way stop at the same time. Uh, it's probably my type A personality, but I like to beat the other cars to the stop sign so that I can be the first one to get out of there, right? Uh, well, this one, I came to a stop and this one just keeps coming and then stops in the middle of the intersection. I'm thinking, what up? What's going on? And then I look closely and I see this young lady who's driving this large vehicle with her phone in her hand and her left hand and her mascara brush in her right hand, and her visor is down with the mirror flipped down, and she's doing this, right? And she's steering with her knuckles. Now, I think she thought she saved herself some grace by coming to a stop at least, right? But she's in the middle of the intersection, and I'm thinking what I said out loud is, what are you doing, right? Now, nobody can hear me, and I didn't expect an answer. It's a rhetorical question, and Paul's saying, a rhetorical question, don't you already know the answer to this? Don't you know you died to your sin when you committed to Jesus? 
So he powerfully associates baptism to drive this point home. Here's the logic. If you don't know the uh, significance of baptism, if you don't understand the importance of it, and baptism comes right at the very beginning of your walk with Jesus, it's very likely that you don't understand what it means to die to sin. That's why he's bringing it in at this point. And you should notice there's never, ever in the Bible any thought whatsoever that an individual can put off baptism as long as they want. There's never a thought that it's optional as though when I feel ready. That's a product of the modern era. We got an issue in 2017 where people think it's all about me as opposed to it's about obedience to God, doing what he called me to do. So we've got a problem today with individuals pushing it off. We also have a problem with this. We miss part of what he's saying here because when we think of baptism, we think of the ritual. Immediately our minds go to an individual at a church service or maybe on a lake shore with a bunch of other people standing around and we watch the ritual, but in their mind, something else triggers to life in the first century. Your first Greek word of two Greek words, I'm gonna give you one at the beginning and one at the end, is this word baptizo. And if you've been at New Hope any length of time, you know this word, it's familiar to you. It, it, it means to be whelmed, fully overwhelmed, fully immersed. That's how baptism is always referred to in the Bible, baptizo. In the first century, to be baptized evoked thoughts of violence. That, that was what triggered in their mind. Now you've heard me talk about how individuals who practice the art of dyeing fabrics in communities baptized cloth. They would push the fabric into the dye underwater and hold it there until the color would change, meaning it had a, a, a new altered state. But Typically, most people, their mind would go to baptizo. That's, that's talking about the sinking of a ship. It was used of naval warfare. When ships went out to sea and a ship lost the battle, the last thing you would see is the mast going down under the horizon because it had become fully immersed, baptizo, to the point of a violent action. Something overcame it. That's exactly the thought line that Jesus has in mind when he's talking about his own death. That's really significant because you find James and John coming to Jesus, and this is one of the funnier stories in the Bible, but they're, they're coming to Jesus as uh, young guys in their 20s, probably early 20s, and they've walked with Jesus a couple of years, and they say to him, Master, when you come into your kingdom, meaning when you're in heaven, would you grant that we would be able to sit at your right hand and your left hand on your throne? <laughs> right? So Jesus' response to them is just... Fascinating. He says, you guys have no idea what you're asking for. They don't really realize what they're asking. And so his response, I want you to see it in Mark on the screen. His response to them, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. And watch how he refers to baptism. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized are you able to be overwhelmed to the point where it pushes you under and crushes you in the same way that I'm about to undergo this? Now, they obviously responded, we are, sure. They didn't know what they were responding to. When applied to the beginning of your life in Jesus, it means the death to the old life, the pushing 
under to the point of overwhelming it and then raised to new life. That's the imagery that goes through with baptism. So Paul's point is make as strongly as he possibly can make it. He's saying it's impossible for anyone who understands the significance of what baptism really is to treat this issue of sin lightly as though it's some optional thing. Well, when I feel like it, maybe when I'm ready to do that. His argument is the contrary. No, the baptized have died to sin. So to easily yield to that sinful activity is really inconsistent with your identity in Jesus. I just want to bear down on a couple words before we get into the story in Acts chapter 8. So look closely at your Bible at Acts chapter 3, and you'll see this on the screen. It says we've been baptized into his death. Now, next week, I want to take on that part about being baptized into Jesus. That's also in verse 3, because I want to talk with you about the benefits of, of walking with Jesus, and that's what that's referring to. But catch this. It says you've been baptized into his death because it's the death of Jesus that saves us. Amen, church? It's the death of Jesus. Notice this. That means sin's power over you. Sin's power is not broken by baptism. Many people think that. That's that's a big part of Christendom today. They think that when they're baptized, that, that put an end to it. Sin's power is not broken by baptism. It's broken by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because apart from his death and apart from his resurrection, baptism is meaningless. Why would you go through that if Jesus didn't die and wasn't resurrected? Because we're connected with him. Corinthians speaks to this. Look with me on the screen at 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, one died, meaning Jesus. Jesus died for all, and therefore all died. That means we're united to him. We're united in his death. We're united with him in his burial. We're united in his resurrection. We're united with him in life. That's what we're going to talk about next week. So let's circle back to this principle that Paul's talking about here. He says, Christians are those who have been baptized into Jesus. Don't you know that you put a death to that sin action? I said earlier, it's very clear that the action of baptism, the physical action, isn't what saves you. How can I back that up? Because a lot of people think that that's what happens. Well, let me give you just the easiest reference, which is going to be the thief on the cross. You remember the Friday Jesus is crucified. He's got the thief on the cross next to him. And the thief on the cross says to him, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus, remember me. Jesus' immediate response is not, well, you've got to be baptized first, right? Jesus' response is, based on your belief, this very day you will be with me in paradise. Ever think about that? The very first guy to enter heaven with Jesus is a dead thief on the cross. That's amazing, right? That in itself, that, that just random thought came to me. Okay, so we've got this guy who expresses belief. Nobody pulled him off the cross and baptized him and then nailed him back to the crucifixion cross again. He's saved based on belief in Jesus. So baptism doesn't save you. The action doesn't save you. We are overwhelmed as believers in Jesus Christ. We are whelmed in the water because we are saved, not to be saved. Otherwise, you'd have to dismantle all of Romans chapter 1 through chapter 5 where Paul's just made the argument. It's not by works, lest any of us would boast. So in the Bible, baptism must point to something really important then. 
in the Bible, baptism uniquely represents your identity in Jesus. So to illustrate that, let me dive into Acts chapter 8 with you, and I'm going to compress it down and make what is a really cool story into a fairly short discussion. Go with me to verse 27 if you have Acts open, and you'll see an activity here that's completely arranged by God. He's put together all the details. The individuals involved just have to respond. Verse 27, part B, this is where we pick it up. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Let me explain to you some of the things going on here. In the Bible, Ethiopia was a very large kingdom. And it's in Africa, on the eastern side, a little bit southern, south of Egypt. Very powerful empire. It was the object of much fascination by the Romans and the Greeks. They were intrigued because they were a very advanced society and powerful society. And we hear about this queen that's in control. And her name is not Candace, that's her title. Like saying Pharaoh or Caesar. And this Candace has a treasurer, someone who's in charge of all her treasure. So in modern terms, we might say this is the chief financial officer or the secretary of the treasury. This individual has gone up to Jerusalem. We're told this person is a eunuch. Why would they have castrated this guy? He's been neutered. Well, in order to keep individuals in control within a king's realm, they typically would neuter the men in order to make them loyal so that they would not be distracted or pulled away by other things. And it was not uncommon to neuter the rulers over the harem, the one who would make sure the king's harem was in place, and to also neuter the chief financial officer, right? Just be glad you didn't live in that period of time, right? You've got individuals who are in this place where they have to be completely surrendered to the king, and his physical status is very significant. I can't get into it with you right now, but it's really important to the story. This guy's on a pilgrimage, and he's a Gentile, and he's gone up to Jerusalem. Now, he can visit the temple in Jerusalem, but he can't go inside. He can never enter it. So the chief treasurer is heading home, and he's rich, and he's powerful, and he's reading the Bible. There's some subtle things going on here. This guy's not only rich and powerful, he's got enough wealth to own his own copy of the scroll of Isaiah. That wasn't given out freely. That was very expensive because there's very few of them. And they weren't given out to Gentiles. So this guy's exercised some authority here. He's put out the cash and he's shown his power and people have surrendered to him the scroll of Isaiah. And it's very difficult to obtain and he's got a chariot and he's got a driver and very likely he's got an entourage with him. But despite his position and despite his power, there's this emptiness in his soul. He's searching. He wants to understand God. He's made this journey from Africa all the way up to Jerusalem trying to understand the one true God and worship him. Now, another individual enters the story, and his name is Philip. And Philip is a follower of Jesus. And he arrives on the scene, and he's doing exactly what God told him to do, but he doesn't know why he's there. He's just there because God said, Philip, I need you to be in such and such a place. So Philip goes there. Pick with me up at verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? 
So Philip's on the run here, but don't picture a dead sprint, right? This is kind of like a trot. I mean, the roads in Roman we speak fondly of uh, as though the, all roads lead to Rome, but they're still made of brick, you guys, so they're like rough, okay? And the guy's in a chariot. He's not riding on rubber tires. So he's got to go slow enough so that he can read. And, and it jostled around. Now, the Hebrew text is very, very tightly spaced. There isn't breaks like we know it today in the English language. In the ancient custom, it was not uncommon to read things out loud, especially if you're perplexed. If you've ever assembled a child's bicycle at midnight on Christmas Eve, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're looking at that manual and reading it out loud like, I can't make any sense of this. They must have written this in another language. Well, this guy's reading the text in Hebrew, and he's trying to make sense, and he can't make sense. So he's so perplexed by what he's reading He doesn't seem to care that Philip's come on the scene. Verse 31 of chapter 8, and he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I love this story, right? God's prepared everything. So Philip just climbs in. He sits down. God's prepared the moment. Verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, meaning the prophet Isaiah, of himself or of someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture, love this, he preached Jesus to him. Using the Old Testament, using Isaiah to talk about Jesus. Philip's ready, and he begins at Isaiah, and he preached Jesus to him, and this is so cool. God has gone before Philip. He's prepared the heart of this individual to receive and to hear things that he can't make sense of. This is just for free church. Just hear this. When you obey God, God will go before you every time. God will go before you and open doors when you obey him where you're at, where he wants you to be. That's what you see Philip doing here. That's just for free. I didn't intend to go off on that. Isaiah 53 is what they're reading. Probably verses 7 and 8, because verse 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53, it's describing Jesus. And it's talking about this one who's come on the scene who willingly dies through a suffering death. And it's one of the most difficult passages in all of Isaiah to understand. It's kind of like trying to explain the light bulb to somebody before Thomas Edison came on the scene. What? How can I make sense of this? So this Ethiopian is focused on verses 7 and 8. And Philip, just to condense it for you, explains the Scripture to him. And he brings the passage to life. And the Spirit opens his mind to truth. And this person understands God's plan for salvation. And the Ethiopian believes Jesus and puts his faith in Jesus. And the experience is authentic. How do I know that? Look with me at verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So this this chariot passes water. The Ethiopian is ready. He's not a closet Christian in any way. And he says, Can I be baptized? This is really significant, right? At the very moment he hits the crisis of belief, what has God orchestrated? The timing that the chariot would come across a body of water. In that very moment, the guy puts the pieces together. Ask yourself this question, church. How does he know that? How does he know to ask to be baptized? He's from Africa. He's a eunuch in the court of the queen. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He hasn't heard Jesus. But yet we find Philip preaching Jesus from the book of Isaiah. And this guy puts two and two together and says, 
can I be baptized? How does he know to ask that? Because he's heard the pieces to the puzzle and he asked the question, what prevents me? Well, nothing, nothing at all. The barriers have been removed. Doesn't matter that he's a Gentile, that he's a eunuch from Africa, that he's from Ethiopia. The only barrier is identified in verse 37. Look with me at verse 37. Here's the barrier. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. See, that's the barrier. If you don't believe, why would you want to be baptized? But if you believe, you may. So the response is this, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Earlier I said that baptism is a declaration. It's an identification. It's a statement. It's a confession of a person who is a believer. What is this guy declaring? Well, he's declaring, first of all, not only to Philip, but he's declaring to his coworkers. Think about the people that are around him in that moment. This guy's wealthy. He's powerful. He's got a chariot driver, and he's willing to tell them to stop because I'm going to identify with Jesus in this moment. What prevents me? See, to be baptized physically is an identity issue. It's a witness of your identification, but it is also an act of obedience. I'm going to ask some of you today to respond to that in obedience. I'm just giving you a heads up in advance. Matthew 28, Jesus said very clearly, go out into all the earth, make disciples, and baptize them. It's not like it's optional, not like when I feel like it. Jesus says, do this. So just bear down with me in verse 3 to set up verse 4. We've got these last five words. This is Paul's argument. You've been baptized into his death. Paul's saying this is a historical fact. He's assuming Christians have been baptized. So he logically links it with verse 4, another historical fact. Verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Don't let that word glory of the Father trip you up. That's talking about the power of God. Raised through the power of God. Now, here's the logical sequence going on. Not only, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are we dead to sin, but death produces something. Death results in a burial. We're buried with him. I can't explain it. It's mysterious, but God says somehow, it's as though mysteriously God takes us back 2,000 years in time. We participate in the death of our Savior, and we're buried with him through this imagery of baptism. A, a burial certifies death, right? You've gone to funerals. It's one thing to see a coffin at a funeral. It's another thing to go to the graveside service after the funeral service and see that coffin lowered into the ground, and then the earth is pushed over it. If you stay long enough, you'll see those who tend to cemeteries do that. What are they doing? They're certifying this death is real because we don't bury people who are alive. We bury dead people. So Paul's using this language here because a burial certifies the reality of the death. Your baptism, it certifies the burial is real because the death is real. Burial with Jesus is the submergence of the body going under the water. And here's what it's expressing. It's expressing the finality of the end of the old way of life, the things that we used to do. So bear with me down in this verse. Verse 4, we're buried with him through baptism into death. 
Now, we were buried with him through his death. Now we're buried with him into baptism, into death. Jesus' death was completely real, followed by a real tomb. Say amen if you believe this. Jesus really died. He really died. It was a physical death. There wasn't any fainting. There wasn't any swooning. There's a real death here. Our death is also complete in him. Because we're told in baptism, we are buried with Christ, meaning the old life has passed away. What are you doing when you're baptized? You're surrendering. You're saying, this this is legitimate for me. This is real. I'm putting an end to the old way, and I'm obeying what Jesus called me to do. But that death also does something. Very specifically, it expresses the impossibility of you coming to life again on your own. Match it up with Jesus. Jesus' death was real, a real tomb, a real crucifixion, a real burial. And except for the power of God intervening and bringing back life, the body would still be in the tomb. The same is true for you and I, so that's why baptism is so important because it brings this image forward that we understand when we're buried Apart from God's intervention, there is no new life. So the death has its purpose, but the death is not the end. Praise the Lord for that. There's something more here. There's something further. Because Jesus' death was followed by resurrection. And our death is followed by God raising us to new life. That's why Paul uses that language. So here's the last part. This is what we end with, with verse 4. We too, so that we too might walk in newness of life. See, the God who imparts life, who raised Jesus, imparts new life to those who believe. You've heard me use this phrase, you want a new beginning with Jesus? Especially if you've been here at at Easter and Christmas, especially because there's so many individuals that come around that period of time who are not familiar with church. And you might hear me say to those individuals, do you want a new beginning? Do you want a brand new start? Do you want to put your past behind you? Do you want a new start? That's where it comes from, right here. This newness of life. This is that last word I told you I'd get to at the end. This word, kanotes. It's a Greek word in your notes, but you see it on the screen. And here's what it's talking about in your life. Something fresh happened in you. A brand new beginning. God did something in you when you professed Jesus Christ. So just as sin characterized your old life, righteousness now characterizes your new life in Jesus. So when someone in your world asks you, how are you living? You can say, righteous, right? I don't know how many people ask you how you're living, right? But I'll ask you how you're living, and you can say, righteous, because that characterizes your new life. Sin characterized your old life. Righteousness characterizes your new life. Just to close this, let me give you a couple bullet points that describe who you are, and we're going to carry this over into next week, descriptions of your new spiritual life. This first one's from Ezekiel. God did this for you. He gave you a new heart. Maybe you didn't think you needed one, but God said the old heart, that was no good. I gave you a new heart. Here's another one. I gave you a new spirit. This next one's cool. He says, I even give you a new song to sing. That's a great thought. I love this fourth one. Revelation says that God has a new name in store for us. Isn't that an interesting thought? I I like the name Mark. I'm pretty attached to it, right? And and I think it's a great book in the Bible. 
But God says, I know your character, Mark. And God changes the name. You find it every time in the Bible. God changes the name of a person to match their character. He changed it from Abram to Abraham. He changed Peter's name. He changed multiple names to match the character. God says, I've got a new name for you, and you're going to find out what it is when you get to eternity with me. That is a cool thought. And God says, I'm the only one that knows it, and I'll tell you what it is. Here's a fifth one that's not on the screen. Here's another identifier for you. We are identified as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, walk in it, Scripture says, because you're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Why? Because your walk, how you walk on this planet, it's the evidence of the new life that's in you. So here's how I'm going to ask you to be bold. I know many of you have been baptized already, but some have not. Some have decided, I, I'm not sure I'm quite ready for it. Let me speak to both groups of individuals here. In the last two services, I've done the same thing, and people agreed. They, they said, yeah, I, I need to be baptized. I understand what Scripture is saying now. I want to be baptized. So um, I haven't told the facility staff here yet. Larry, by the way, you're finding out for the first, first time. Um, we're gonna, yeah, you're catching on, aren't you? We're going to do a baptism service here next week, Okay. And if I need to walk in there um, with my blue jeans on, I'd be happy to do that with you, okay? Let me speak to the first group if you've been baptized already. You may need to do what I find myself needing to do more often than what I do. You may need to go before God like King David and say, Father, I do want to put away this sinful activity I've been involved in. Will you examine me and search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. I use David for an example because we're told in the Bible that King David is called a man after God's own heart. And yet even David is humble enough to come before God and say, search me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. Why is that important for us? Because there's good potential in the world that we live in that we can find ourselves stumbling into things that become habit to us that God needs to check us on and say, you're not dealing with that issue. So that's for you if you've already been baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, that issue is for you also. But here's the next step. I'm going to ask you to be really bold. After this service, Kyle is going to stand in the back. You saw Kyle in the beginning of the service standing up here. He's going to be in the back with a clipboard. And, and if you want to give him your name and phone number, he'll write that down. And we, we'll get you in and be part of the baptism service next week if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. We really want to celebrate that with you. You can stand before your New Hope family and let those who are present celebrate with you your life in Jesus Christ. I'm sure Philip was celebrating what he saw happen in the life of that eunuch. You have surrendered your old life. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are saved. So bury it. Bury that old life in baptism. Do what Jesus has called you to do in obedience. I'm going to allow you to ask some questions about what we just talked about like we typically do on Saturday night if you want to interact over that. But let me pray with you first and then I'll preface that for you. Father, thank you for making your word so clear. And I pray for this moment right now that the things that are being pondered by every individual in this auditorium will not be things that we allow to quickly dissipate from our mind. If you've brought conviction on something, God, and your Holy Spirit is working on us, I pray for the power of the Spirit to remain 
so that we would surrender to what you're calling us to do. Don't let us avoid this. Father, I also pray that you allow us to walk in boldness because of who we are, that we identify with the risen king, not the king who stayed in the grave, but the one who raised us to newness of life. Father, I pray for every one of us that have gathered together, those who are watching right now, that we would walk more boldly for you because of your claim upon us. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. Um, Last night I noticed that this topic stimulated a lot of questions in the Saturday night service. We always do Q&A in the Saturday night service. And I thought, well, maybe 9, 15, and 11 would be interested to ask questions. So don't feel obligated to stay for this. If you've got an observation, though, or a question about what you just heard, have at it. Um, Raise your hand and let me engage with you over that if, if there's something that's on your heart. What's that? Nobody wants, to be first. Nobody wants to be first, but apparently Hazel does. Go ahead, Hazel. Oh, you misread the psalm and, and said, show me, my, show me my heart? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's okay. That's pretty close because what he's saying is, would you reveal to me my heart, right? How, how am I behaving before you, God? Reveal to me if there's any wicked way. Thank you. Kyle. If you were baptized as an infant, should you be baptized later on in life? I bet you a lot of you were thinking that, right? Okay, so that, that's on the heart of a lot of individuals, especially depending on if you grew up in some other tradition or denominational setting. Um, especially in the Catholic Church, they believe in baptizing infants, right? I want to distinguish very quickly between infants and children. I can point you to eight-year-olds who were baptized, and they thoroughly understand it. They know what they were signing up for, and, and to this day in their 20s would say, I understood it then and I understand it now, okay? But the difference with an infant is an infant doesn't have a choice in the matter, I'm very familiar with the Reformed tradition, and I understand um, what's going on there. I grew up in the Christian Reformed community over on the west side of Michigan, and some of you probably understand that very thoroughly well. In, in that tradition, they believe that baptizing an infant is putting a seal upon that child, and the parents willingly would say, we know that this doesn't save the child, but we're asking for God's protection over this child, and they baptize them as infants. My, my point to that would be, you won't find any place in the Bible where infants are baptized because it is a decision someone makes based on their understanding of who they are to Jesus Christ. But more importantly, baptism doesn't save you If it did, you'd be earning salvation by works. So we want to be really clear about that. Infant baptism can be what those parents want it to be. It can be um, a tradition that they want to engage in. But for baptism to be biblical the way that we've just examined it today, God said very clearly, it's someone who understands Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And I'm putting to death the old and I'm beginning this new walk with my king. And this, this is like driving the stake in the ground, right? Now, I will tell you my own little story. I was baptized as a 10-year-old, and I did not understand it. I, I told my mom that I came to faith in Jesus Christ when I was eight years old um, because a bunch of my friends did, but it wasn't real. 
I was, I was pretending. It wasn't until I was 14 I really understood salvation and what I was committing to. And so at age 21, I went and found a pastor who would baptize me because I knew what I had done earlier, it, it wasn't legit because it didn't mean anything to me. And I wanted personally as an adult to say, I get it. And I don't care who's watching. I want everyone to know. I understand this is my commitment to Jesus. So you may need to deal with that your way, but I would encourage you, if you feel at all the need to follow up with what we're talking about today, see Kyle afterwards or Gary, and we'll make sure your name's on the list and we'll get you baptized next week. It, it'll be a fun celebration. It's fun here at New Hope to baptize, right? We, we applaud that and cheer that. Yes? Yeah, a christening that takes place, and it takes place in a lot of traditions, is, is very similar. It's like a, a parent dedicating the child before the Lord, saying, this child we're giving over, God, please protect it and seal it. Yeah. Okay, get out of here. <laughs> Have a good week.